Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and thanks for listening to Grid Talk. Today, we have our special guest, Bob Rowe, President and CEO of Northwestern Energy, based in the Pacific Northwest. Bob has been a CEO and president since 2008. He's also co-chair of the Institute for Electric Innovation under the EEI Institution. Bob, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'd like to ask just to put on your hat for a second at the Institute for Electric Innovation and tell us what you see happening in terms of shaping the future of the grid that is particularly exciting and perhaps underappreciated by the broad public and industry. What's really exciting about IEI is it's uh, it's a very collaborative forum. Obviously, it's uh, part of the Edison Electric Institute, our uh, electric trade association. IEI started many years ago with a focus on energy efficiency and has really uh, moved towards a much uh, broader focus on technology. Uh, It's driven by the participating EEI companies, uh, but then brings in technology partners. And their focus is on uh, companies that are actually partnering with utilities on emerging technology uh, products in all kinds of areas. Obviously, uh, security, grid reliability, flexibility, and increasingly, uh, the focus has been on customer products and customer service. There are all kinds of uh, really creative things that uh, technology companies, large and small, are doing with EEI uh, member companies. In the last six months to a year, uh, the work of IEI has really come full circle. In fact, just a few days ago, uh, we had uh, a meeting uh, where we had the the rollout of a a new paper uh, rethinking the role of energy efficiency uh, as we move from simply saving uh, kilowatt hours, the uh, classic role, to uh, thinking about the role of efficiency in, for example, uh, network planning, design, investment. Uh, think about efficiency as a uh, carbon strategy, efficiency as a value-added customer service. And of course, whenever you do that, then you have to go back to the regulatory model and ask very difficult questions about whether a regulatory model uh, that pays for fixed-cost infrastructure uh, by spinning meters, by throughput, uh, is really adequately supportive of the opportunities in the energy efficiency area. Of course, this is the uh, oldest question, uh, perhaps, uh, but uh, continues to be the question on the forefront. So, uh, fundamentally, IEI uh, is a very focused area within EEI uh, that does allow uh, the electric companies and the technology companies to come together uh, and focus on what's most meaningful now and also hopefully 
uh, look over the horizon just a little bit. So, Bob, let's drill down to Northwestern Energy, based in Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, with approximately 735,000 electric and gas customers. You're in a part of the country that the rest of the country probably does not pay a lot of attention to, absent the current tragic wildfire season. Let me ask, before we go any further, how is your service territory faring? Overall, quite well. We certainly have had some fires in Montana. We had one very significant fire just north of Bozeman uh, and uh, quite a number of uh, residents in a, a pretty rugged area uh, were evacuated. Uh, we had to uh, certainly shut down power and our, our crews were very much a part of the recovery. Actually, uh, you're, you're right. Many of your listeners probably don't know quite as much about uh, our part of the world. Uh, and maybe I should say just a little bit. Um, South Dakota, beautiful state, thriving economy, high plains. Uh, South Dakota, we are electric uh, and natural gas, uh, vertically integrated on the electric side. Uh, Nebraska, central Nebraska, we are natural gas. Operate that as part of our South Dakota territory. And in South Dakota, we participate in the Southwest Power Pool, and we found real uh, value for our customers there. Your market's really changing, and one of the main changes is the subtraction of coal resources out of the Northwest, primarily around retirement of units at Coal Strip. So, as I understand reading your literature and your resource planning, you're going to move from a resource adequacy situation to a p- potential shortage in coming years. How big of a worry is that for you, and what are your plans for addressing that? It is a very large worry and has been. And actually, just to close the loop, uh, that's a question specific to Montana. So South Dakota, we face into the Southwest Power Pool. Montana, we're on the uh, western grid. There's not an organized market. It's primarily uh, bilateral, arrangement, bilateral arrangements. And then in Montana, uh, our predecessors uh, at Montana Power Company uh, went through supply deregulation and ultimately divestiture. So imagine a, uh, an electric company serving a large rural area with no owned resources uh, and participating in a bilateral, unorganized market and with an obligation to serve. That was our situation as recently as 2008. We've made a lot of progress in terms of meeting our customers' energy needs, particularly through acquiring the uh, essentially run-of-the-river hydro system in Montana. And that was transformative in terms of providing uh, a basic set of resources uh, dedicated to serve our Montana customers at cost, uh, but also transformative in terms of carbon of the energy that we deliver to our customers. So you picked up a, about a dozen hydro units? Yes. Who owned them previously? Uh, they were part of a sale by Montana Power Company to EPL. Uh, effectively, all of the Montana generation, all the generation owned by Montana Power Company, uh, was sold to PPL in the aftermath of uh, deregulation. So I understand that you are trying to buy a significant hunk of coal strip unit four from Puget Sound Energy. 
25% of the output put are 185 megawatts for the princely sum of $1. Talk about that deal and why it's important. Sure. From a number of uh, perspectives, uh, first of all, it's um, notable that Talon, the successor of PPL, uh, which is a part owner in Colstrip and is the operator, asserted a row for its right of first refusal uh, against half of the transaction. So effectively, uh, what we are uh, now proposing to acquire is just a little bit over uh, 90 uh, megawatts. And if you look at the stack of resources we have in Montana, currently we are right around 34% wind or solar, and that uh, we expect to move up to 51%. We are 24% hydro, 10% natural gas, right around 11% uh, coal right now. But uh, back to the concern about resource adequacy, uh, at peak, uh, we are essentially 45% exposed to the market. Uh, more uh, pointedly, our customers are 45% exposed to the market. So the entire West is concerned about the ability to meet peak. Within the Pacific Northwest, uh, that concern has, uh, for a number of years, been even more acute. But for us, the arrow has been uh, at red, really going back to our 2015 uh, electric supply plan. So to put a, a fine point on it, tell me if this is correct. Uh, one thing I read said that the planned retirement of 3,600 megawatts of coal is going to point to a regional peak shortages as soon as 2021. Is that correct? That's correct. So how are you going to address that? Well, we have, um, obviously there are uh, actions that on the margin uh, can help, but fundamentally we need to acquire uh, additional uh, dispatchable resources. Uh, acquiring uh, 90-ish megawatts of coal strip for a dollar is certainly very helpful to fill for a period of time that hole. I should note that an important part of that transaction is a five-year purchase sale agreement back to Puget, and we would dedicate uh, the essentially the profit from that sale to the eventual closing costs at our existing uh, ownership at Colstrip. So there are two sides to the Colstrip transaction uh, in terms of uh, looking forward to the future of Colstrip, but also uh, helping to fill the uh, the hole uh, near term, but it only fills part of the hole. So there's a strong pull nationwide to move away from coal for, as a result of concerns about climate change. And there are environmentalists out west and the northwest that want to see all coal strip closed. Um, you're... You were a state regulator in Montana for a decade, so you know how public policy pressure weighs on this industry. How do you see negotiating a way forward? Uh, I assume you need this coal desperately, and there's going to be a lot of pressure to, to move away from it. How, how do you see that being resolved? We, well, first of all, we've, at the same time we announced the transaction, and I believe the transaction has a, a pretty strong environmental component through dedicating the uh, proceeds from the uh, purchase power agreement back uh, 
to uh, the coal strip site. Uh, but at the same time we announced the sale, we also did announce uh, what we thought was an actionable plan for the continued uh, reduction in carbon in our Montana portfolio, uh, leading to a 90% uh, reduction based on, based on what we know now. And again, right now, the power we deliver in Montana is over 60% carbon-free, and we're doing that at uh, prices to our customers well below the national average, uh, whereas uh, many companies have announced very ambitious plans to continue reducing carbon, but uh, thanks to the hydro transaction, we're starting from a very, very high, high baseline. Our responsibilities to our customers are affordable, reliable, safe, and environmentally responsible energy. But the statutory requirement really is uh, focused on long-term reliability and affordability. And we think the, the structure uh, that we're putting in place is one that really does honor all of those objectives, again, including long-term environmental responsibility. But remember, the, uh, the outages in California are occurring in a system where, as you've noted, there have been substantial retirements. But at the same time, they've got right now, I think, 51% of the installed capacity in California is natural gas. Uh, and that's compared to, I think, about 23% uh, intermittent uh, solar, solar thermal, or wind. So it's almost the exact opposite of the situation we have in Montana. And again, the history of Montana, the nature of our resources makes our exposure, our customers' exposure at peak so much greater. Uh, and that's the, the facts on the ground uh, that we need to address. So the, the core step we're undertaking right now is a request for proposals uh, administered uh, by a third party and dividing the uh, solicitation into three parts. We're looking for a 20-hour uh, power dispatchable, 20-hour uh, ride-through, 10-hour ride-through, and 5-hour ride-through. So within that structure, there should be an opportunity for a variety of resources to, uh, to contribute. And in Montana, uh, again, the size of our customers' peak exposure uh, is really unlike anything else in our region dramatically different from anything else in our region. And the nature of that peak, we certainly have, we have a summer peak uh, and a winter peak, typically associated with high pressure. And high pressure, obviously, uh, wind in particular uh, is not available. But our, our winter peaks are uh, sustained and they're severe. And if we can't meet our customers' needs, there's certainly there's a financial uh, exposure, but increasingly there is an availability uh, risk as well, and it's our obligation to address that. As part of that, uh, it's our obligation to communicate with our stakeholders, communicate with policymakers to be sure they understand the risk, multiple perspectives on the risk, uh, and they understand the, uh, the set of actions that, that you can take to help mitigate that risk. So... You're going to be moving into the Western uh, region imbalance market, I believe, in 2021. How is that going to help you with this situation? Uh, it, it helps, uh, but the imbalance market uh, is just that. It's not a tool to address 
long-term resource issues. And we've committed uh, a lot of boots on the ground to, uh, to moving into the imbalance market. Uh, we think it's a valuable step. The other thing, though, that we're doing at the same time is uh, actively participating in the Northwest Power Pool's uh, work around resource adequacy, and arguably, uh, certainly it is as important, arguably uh, more important. Uh, and what the Power Pool is doing is, first of all, coming up with a, uh, a common metrics, so or we're all looking at different kinds of resources uh, and their potential capacity contribution uh, in similar ways. Uh, and inventorying existing resources and then being uh, as, as clear as we can that we're finally dealing with this problem of what I refer to as too many straws in the same drink. And as you pointed out, that drink is getting drained as uh, resources go offline. Uh, so that's going to give us an awful lot more visibility uh, into the situation in our own market and ability to cooperatively uh, plan together. So the imbalance market is important. I would say the regional resource adequacy work is just as important. You bring up the straws. So let's talk about transmission for a minute. Um, sparsely uh, populated territories that you serve, you have 28,000 miles of transmission and distribution. My understanding is as you pull retired coal units, those power lines are not necessarily capable of taking power into your region the way they were designed to take it out. So talk a little bit about the engineering challenge you face reconfiguring your transmission lines. And then let's, um, after that, we'll turn to distribution. Great. Yeah. And your, your point is exactly right. Um, we are on the easternmost edge of the Western interconnect out of Montana, very light uh, connectivity from our Montana system uh, going east. So effectively power moves uh, to and from the west. Uh, coal strip line certainly is one of the most important uh, assets. Uh, it was built uh, for the specific function of moving power uh, from coal strip to the Western markets. But at the same time, that is also the uh, kind of the artery for our system serving our Montana customers. Add to that, uh, the industrial sector in Montana has remained at the market. Uh, we are not, we are the delivery provider, but not the supply provider. So, uh, for decades and decades, a uh, production facility in in Billings, for example, of some kind of refinery, whatever it happens to be, um, had uh, a power plant uh, right next to it. Uh, wasn't having to pay uh, wheeling charges from from Mid Columbia. Uh, wasn't concerned about. Uh, transmission constraints. As units are shut down, uh, conventional units uh, in Montana, uh, that further stresses, there's a, a, a physical stress, a physical constraint, uh, but also an economic challenge for, uh, for the industrial sector. I think you, you've really painted the picture in your question of 
the Western interconnect, which is much more long lines, much less dense infrastructure, transmission infrastructure, than is true in the East. And that and allows you to really shine a light on what some of the various constraints are. So transmission, most people would recognize is a key attribute for uh, transactions within the Western United States. Uh, interestingly, uh, when I joined Northwestern in 2008, it was a, a Mountain States transmission intertie proposal the company had uh, to help move basically renewable power uh, out of Montana to the West. It was probably ahead of its time. There wasn't really a, and there were lots of parties who were interested uh, in the line, uh, potential project developers in Montana, but very, very difficult uh, for them to enter into uh, contracts with load serving entities uh, at the other end. Uh, we, we gave that project a, a good shot, but again, very, very difficult to build a major transmission project at that time uh, in the West outside of an organized market uh, as valuable as, as that would have been. So again, right now the coal strip line is backbound going to serve our customers uh, is the pathway for moving power out of Montana uh, and increasingly is the pathway for moving power into Montana. So let's turn to distribution now. What are you doing creatively with, with your uh, distribution network? Yeah, this is really one of the most uh, exciting things, and it's a, a project that's uh, gone forward in increments uh, really since I joined Northwestern. Uh, we do, we have, uh, like most companies, we have incredible planners, uh, very, very creative, uh, visionary, innovative engineers, uh, and we spend a lot of time consulting with stakeholders as well. So first project was our distribution system infrastructure plan had an electric component, a gas component, brought in a uh, third party consultant to really hammer away on us and push us and also used a stakeholder group. That project, uh, the overall effort had about five separate projects on the gas side, on the electric side. A lot of it had to do with uh, uh, dealing with aging infrastructure, rebuilding capacity in the system, and beginning to address rural reliability, and developing an awful lot of data uh, about our system. And again, just as we talked about on the transmission side, uh, our system is uh, rural, it's dispersed, uh, and it's pretty darn rugged, uh, particularly in Montana. Uh, so that project was a real success. Uh, we accomplished what we uh, needed to accomplish, developed a great deal of data. Uh, then we expanded that approach with, uh, again, more uh, stakeholder consultation to the uh, trans electric and gas transmission systems, as well as the distribution system. Uh, now uh, we're using that data to be much more predictive in terms of how we uh, think about the system, uh, getting a lot more visibility uh, into the system uh, and being uh, able to be much more precise in how we control the system. Uh, so 
some of these things will look the same for uh, for quite a few uh, companies, uh, but standing up a distribution operation center in phases, we're still in the relatively early phases that uh, will control both South Dakota and Montana, uh, moving towards smart switches in three phases, essentially. Some of this comes out of a regional smart grid pilot a number of years ago. Uh, phase one is just smart switches uh, basically between substations. Uh, phase two will have more of a rural focus and then also working with uh, particularly sensitive loads around our service territory, for example, hospitals. Uh, that's an exciting project. Uh, uh, another uh, data-driven project is uh, what we're referring to as the ESID effort, and that's simply electric segment identification. Uh, the average circuit on our system can be as much as 40 miles, uh, but we can break that circuit down into uh, sub-segments between taps or uh, reclosures or air brakes. And if you can focus in on the uh, on the sub-circuits, the segments, uh, where you have a, uh, a quality issue, liability issue, um, whatever the circumstance happens to be, and concentrate your proactive measures on that segment, you can be much, much more efficient rather than uh, redoing an entire 40-mile circuit. Uh, you may be able to focus in on, say, three or four uh, three-mile uh, circuits. So that's uh, an exciting project. I was just going to ask about uh, microgrids. You've got a couple of experiments going or developments near Deer Lodge and in Yellowstone. Can you tell us what you see the potential of the microgrid technology? Yeah, and actually that's uh, just where I wanted to go. We have several hundred non-looped rural lines. Uh, and our, our service territory is actually one of the, the largest in the United States. But uh, obviously there's an awful lot of dirt between LEDs. Uh, and in many areas we don't have looped uh, lines. We have, we have radio lines. If you're living in uh, an urban area, you're, um, you're receiving power potentially from two uh, directions. If one line goes out, you can be uh, switched now increasingly automatically to another line. Uh, an outage in a rural area uh, might be up in a very mountainous area, uh, difficult to patrol. Uh, outages are a real problem. So uh, we see one of the opportunities for storage uh, as it becomes more cost-effective, storage coupled with controls as a way to dramatically improve rural uh, reliability. And uh, we have a, our first pilot project focused on that, as you mentioned, was near uh, Deer Lodge. And this was a, a rural, um, uh, not very well-performing circuit, uh, fewer than 20 customers. Uh, but again, automation, bus storage, in that case, uh, we also added uh, solar, although the storage can be uh, can be and is grid-fed, but it was an opportunity to uh, model uh, solar as well. Uh, it's worked incredibly well. In 
Yellowstone Park, uh, which of course is primarily in Wyoming, we serve Yellowstone Park on a contract basis. So we're not uh, disintermediated by uh, politics or regulation. We were able to meet directly with the customers, the park service, the concessionaires in the park, talk about what their goals are, what their needs are, and how we can work with them. So we have one project up and running at West Thumb, southern part of the park, West Thumb on, on Yellowstone Lake. Uh, we had had, we'd, uh, years ago, there had been a, uh, a line out to that location. It was taken down quite a while ago. So the facilities there were uh, just working off of a generator. We installed uh, a, instead of a traditional uh, battery, installed uh, something that's uh, really more akin to a, a supercapacitor. So far, that's going, it's working extremely well, uh, just as expected. That was a um, relatively small application. We're going to do essentially the same thing at a larger level at a ranger station. So, Bob, do you see these uh, micrograds as potentially replicable, and uh, will you be using them more and more with your customers? Yeah, it's a project that we, we believe, uh, again, as we get comfortable with the technology, and so far it's performing as stated, uh, and as uh, prices become attractive, we see uh, actually a large number of rural circuits where uh, the technology uh, can make sense to manage system costs as opposed to building a redundant line uh, and to improve reliability. So that's something we're very excited about. We know there are other uh, companies that have similar challenges, maybe not quite on the scale we do, but we think it's an application uh, that uh, that could make sense in, in other systems as well. Great. Thanks for talking with us, Bob. Thank you. Your questions are, are great as always. I always enjoy listening to your interviews. Thanks to, to Bob Barreau, who's president and CEO of Northwestern Energy, for sharing his insights about the industry and, in particular, his part of the industry in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk. You can send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at enroll.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about this series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.